1: But I think a lot of the things that we saw in Tokyo fit into those larger patterns that you're talking about, whether it's death, debt, displacement, militarization, greenwashing, which we absolutely need to talk about, and then just sort of the boxing out of everyday people from actually experiencing their normal lives that are, you know, they have to put on hold in order to make way for the Olympics.
2: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to the author of Power Games, Jules Boykoff. Jules and I, together, are just back from Tokyo, where we were investigating the prep for the 2020 Olympics, the Summer Games, which will be held in that amazing city. We're going to talk about what we saw in Tokyo, and Jules and I wrote a series of articles for The Nation about it, which you can access at thenation.com, and we are going to discuss. Also, we have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more, but first, let's go to the thorn in the side of the International Olympic Committee, Jules Boykoff. Jules Boykoff, the most important question.
1: Uh, we're just back from Tokyo. How are you doing with the jet lag? <laughs> I managed to do all right, actually. I must have gotten lucky somehow. I don't know how I did it. Boo. For those of us who <laughs> suffered, uh, we resent you. Um, <laughs> So
2: and, and then the second most important question, Jules, about our sojourn to the amazing city of Tokyo. Now you don't drink or eat meat, and I was downing sake and sushi. So the first question I want to know is, how annoying was I?
1: <laughs> Dave, you were a total pleasure to travel with. Uh, truly, you were, and uh, you know I, I have to say it was interesting being in Tokyo. I thought it was going to be a little easier to be a vegetarian, um, but Not hey, so easy. No, it's not, actually, but we made it work, so a lot of real nice, patient people there in Tokyo were willing to help me out. Uh, There was the one guy at that sushi bar who openly scoffed and laughed in our faces when he heard that I was a vegetarian, but, you know, I've gotten used to it. I've been a vegetarian since 1993, so I've seen a few things when it comes to people's reactions to it.
2: Yeah, and this might be worth a, a different discussion with a more expert guest, perhaps on the culinary front. But it is interesting how it's not really a culture of extremes like the United States. You don't see a lot of people who suffer from obesity. Uh, There's not a ton of fast food places, although they do exist. And at the same time, not a lot of vegetarian places. So less extremes, more in the middle. That's my impression.
1: Yeah, and it was interesting too when you'd stop by any convenience store, you'd see those healthy snacks there instead of like the corn dog that's been rolling Mm -hmm. under the heat. like seven hours. Instead, you'd see these little triangles that were made of rice wrapped in seaweed with whatever you wanted on the inside, whether it was a plum or ginger or some sort of meat like chicken. So even the snack seemed a little bit healthier. Maybe that would help explain some of the healthier looking people we'd see strolling around Tokyo. Mm, Corn dogs. I'm sorry. Got to get back (laughs) on set.
2: I got to get back on tack. All right. So I want to talk to you about what we saw in Tokyo, have a conversation with you about that. But first and foremost, before we do that, what were your expectations going in, insofar as Tokyo and the Olympics and the way these two uh, entities were intersecting?
1: Yeah, well, I expected there to be a lot of fervor in Tokyo in favor of the Olympics. Japan has a pretty storied history when it comes to the Olympic Games. Tokyo was originally slated to host the 1940 Olympics, but then war got in the way and those games were eventually stopped, postponed, never to be had. Um, they they also hosted the Olympics in Sapporo in, in 72, the the Winter Olympics, Nagano in '98, the Winter Olympics again. And of course, you know, Tokyo hosted in '64 as well. And so I sort of expected people to be Olympics crazy, like really excited about it, seeing it all over the streets because there is a history there uh, with Japan and the Olympics. Uh, When we got there, I was I was, you know, I think we saw plenty of signage around, but there weren't that many people really talking about the Olympics that, that we spoke with. I guess the other thing going into it was I thought we were going to see an interesting collection of activists from around the world who are coming together, making a special effort to come together and convene in Tokyo. And I was interested in that because we'd never really seen that before in terms of the history of anti-games activism, a sort of concerted transnational jamboree, if you will, of activists from around the world. So going into it, I was really keen to see how they managed, how they managed the language gap. And what kind of resolutions they put forth as a way to, you know, move forward with their more of a movement, I guess you'd say.
2: And and, and just for our, our listeners out there, uh, the activists who converged onto Tokyo to talk about this, they were doing so because it was the the one year jump off point until the Olympics, the one year countdown and they were protesting the debt displacement and hyper-militarization that comes with the Olympics. Did did you find that there were any Tokyo-specific issues that you felt like people were upset about when you spoke to anti-games activists?
1: Plenty, actually. I mean, the more that we got to travel around and see where the venues were being constructed, the more it became apparent that everyday people in Tokyo were really losing out because of the Olympics. I mean, the For example, they were building this sub-track or a practice track for athletes for the Olympic Games. I guess basically what happens with every Olympics is that before they come into the stadium to run their races, they warm up on a track outside of the stadium. They come in ready to go so they can keep the Olympics moving quickly. But they were building this sub-track in an area that was formerly – a place where amateur athletes came together to play baseball, um, rubber ball, all these other games that they could play. Kick around a soccer ball in this open space. And it had basically been fenced off. And they were constructing this special track for the Olympics. And so, you know, specific to Tokyo, we saw uh, enclosured parks And people unable to access their sports. We actually saw a father and a son playing baseball on the cement there outside Mm -hmm. of the fence, you know. So uh, there were specific issues like that that cropped up in different sort of ways. But I think a lot of the things that we saw in Tokyo fit into those larger patterns that you're talking about, whether it's debt displacement, militarization, greenwashing, which we absolutely need to talk about, and then just sort of the boxing out of everyday People from actually experiencing their normal lives that are, you know, they have to put on hold in order to make way for the Olympics.
2: Yeah, for those who don't know, what is greenwashing and how do you see it playing out in Tokyo?
1: Sure. Well, greenwashing as a basic concept is the idea that you make big environmental promises with very little environmental follow through. So you talk the big green talk, but you don't necessarily walk the green walk. And In terms of the Olympics, we've seen it crop up since the 1990s when the International Olympic Committee started to talk more and more about their alleged concerns for the environment, making it one of the pillars of their organization. But through time, we've seen that the International Olympic Committee talks a lot about fixing the environment and how the Olympics are going to help. But they actually don't do very much to to actually follow through on that. And so, in fact, in some cases, it's even even worse, as we're seeing here with Tokyo, where it's diverting attention from issues that really need to be addressed in terms of uh, the wider economic and especially environmental calamities that hit Fukushima Prefecture. So, you know, as a general idea, greenwashing has popped up in, in IOC, International Olympic Committee circles, since the 1990s. And we've seen it at numerous Olympics in the past. I mean, you only need to go back to the previous Summer Olympics held in Rio de Janeiro, where if you look at the bid documents for Rio, you saw that Olympic honchos made big promises about cleaning up the water in Guanabara Bay, uh, which is a place where they held some of the Olympic events and where a lot of people in the Rio de Janeiro area would go to swim. Um, They said that actually 80% of the water that was being filtrated into Guanabara Bay was going to be clean. Uh, but nothing of the sort happened. And in fact, when that promise was made early on, a lot of these green promises get the locals excited. I mean, if you're from Rio, you think, "Wow, that'd be awesome!" I mean, if we got Guanabara Bay cleaned up and we'd be able to swim there, bring our families there for picnics, and you know, really enjoy that space. But again, nothing of the sort happened. And that and that's what we talk about as greenwashing, using these events to say we're going to do a lot of green things, but not actually falling through with those green things.
2: And you mentioned Fukushima. I do want to talk to you about that. But first, uh, one of the other big issues for the Olympics is displacement. Now, you and I met a couple of people who are being displaced for these 2020 games, and they had also been displaced uh, 55 years earlier for the 64 games. What was that experience like for you?
1: Uh, It was incredibly powerful for starters. Um, Painful as well to hear their stories. And You know, just to put it in a wider context with the Olympics, since displacement really is one of the larger themes, if you will, when the Olympics come to your town. I mean, Beijing, for example, at the 2008 Olympics displaced 1.5 million people to make way for venues and construction for the Olympics. 1.5 million Rio, again, just four years ago, some 77,000 people were displaced to make way for those summer games. And so this has become kind of par for the Olympic course, if you will. And even when the numbers aren't particularly high, there are stories of individuals, painful and poignant stories of individuals who have their lives shattered by the displacement that's been induced by the Olympic Games. And, you know, the people that we spoke with in Tokyo they were living at the Kasumigaoka apartment complex there. And as you said, they were displaced for the 1964 Olympics and again for the 2020 Olympics. And what an honor it was to sit at these, this table with these courageous people and our, our interpreters and to look at the, the papers that they'd assembled, mm. these little plastic notebooks, beautifully organized by date through time, you know there's like a half dozen of these notebooks on the table between us. They're pulling out these documents that are browned by time, newspapers browned by time from 1964, and papers that are showing how they actually stood up and tried to fight back in 1964. And so, you know, just seeing people have their their lives change so drastically to make way for an Olympic series of events, you know, is is just powerful. And I think it's important to hear those stories because sometimes People will look at Tokyo, I'm sure, and as we move closer to those games and say, look, hardly anybody was displaced. But, you know, 300 households just in the Kasumigaoka complex were displaced, and every one of those has a story to tell. And fortunately for us, we got to hear some of those stories, as painful as they were. Uh, Those are the kind of things we need to hear if we're going to understand the Olympics in their full complexity.
2: And those folks from 64, uh, they didn't want to give us their names uh, because mm-hmm. they were concerned about reprisals. I think that's an important statement, too, because there's this idea that, oh, you had authoritarian Beijing, and now you have a much more democratic Tokyo. But still, I mean, there's that idea that the Olympics themselves can make a country more authoritarian.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we hear a lot about The authoritarian countries that are hosting the Olympics were told that, oh, it's going to bring democracy. Beijing was the big promise. Nothing of the sort has happened, of course, although that didn't stop the International Olympic Committee from giving them the 2020 Winter Olympics, which are coming up here. But definitely, we see with putative democracies, uh, countries that fashion themselves as democracies, that they have to become more authoritarian to host the Olympics. I mean, there's a requirement that national governments pass special laws that harmonize with the dictates of the International Olympic Committee. And we're seeing that right now. Tokyo passed a special law back in uh, 2017 that made a whole slew of new crimes, things like doing sit-ins to protest housing uh, removals. That's a new crime in Tokyo, like more than a hundred new crimes. And this fits perfectly with the overall plans of the Olympic honchos in Lausanne, Switzerland, where the International Olympic Committee is based. They have special rules within the Olympic charter that uh, prevent athletes and others from protesting at Olympic venues. And so, yeah, if you wanna host the Olympics and you're a democracy, you're gonna have to become more authoritarian to do so. And we've seen it in Olympic city after Olympic city.
2: Yeah, that's certainly the truth, Um, no doubt. Um, and I wanted to ask you also, like, when we talked to the people who were displaced in 64 and now are being displaced again for 2020, they did a little bit of interesting compare and contrast about the narratives for the 64 Olympics to 2020, as well as uh, the response by the government to their displacement between 64 and 2020. Can can you speak about that a little bit? Because I think it's it's sure. a very interesting window to how our, not just Japan, but how our globally, how our society has changed in that period.
1: Absolutely. I mean, 1964, they weren't happy about being displaced. Um, It was definitely a painful experience. Uh, The woman who we interviewed who's in her 60s talked about how she was really just a, a child then, and she was feeling really upset about it. Um, She was concerned about the animals that lived in the area. She didn't know what happened to them from their community. Um, But, you know, at least they were talking about how in 64 there were some perks. They negotiated with the city, and the city ended up giving a lot of the people running water who didn't have running water in that apartment complex. There were modern toilets that were given. Uh, Some got gas, which made life easier. So... You know, it, I guess it points to the fact that that not all displacements are created equal because in 2020, their community was just totally fractured and residents were sent off to three different relocation sites all across the city. And this really broke apart a close knit community and this from a community that really didn't want to be displaced. Apparently, some academics went in there and and did a survey and they found that 80% of those who lived in Kasumigaoka apartments, did they actually wanted to stay. They didn't want to get fractured out to these three different places. And so, you know, not all uh, displacements are created equal, uh, but they all involve pain to a certain degree. Absolutely. Um, that's real talk right there. And just that also
2: uh, dovetails with what I wanted to talk to you about, our trip to Fukushima, which in 2011 had a—suffered— uh, from the effects of a tsunami, an earthquake, and then a nuclear meltdown, nuclear catastrophe in Fukushima. We visited uh, Fukushima. We went uh, as close as possible as we could go uh, to the nuclear meltdown to try to investigate whether or not this was a safe place. And one of the reasons we went was because the torch run for the Olympics is actually going to kick off in Fukushima and there are going to be Olympic events happening in Fukushima. So what what is it about the narrative that the prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, and the International Olympic Committee, what are they trying to project and what are they trying to prove by having the torch run start from Fukushima?
1: Yeah, I think this is really, really important. If we go back to 2013 when Tokyo was trying to get the votes at the IOC, International Olympic Committee, meeting, the Shinzo Abe, the prime minister at the time then and now, stood up and said that everything in fukushima was under control and your listeners will remember that that earthquake tsunami and nuclear meltdown happened in march 2011 so it was on a lot of people's minds in 2013 when they were thinking about how to cast their votes and so abe gets up in front of everybody and just says hey you don't need to worry about anything it's it's going to be just fine everything is to his words under control But back in Japan, things were absolutely not under control. In fact, most of the country, at least in uh, Fukushima Prefecture, was in total freakout mode. And yet Abe and others that were pushing the bid decided to brand it the Recovery Olympics. That's the big slogan that they're using, the Recovery Olympics, to say that they're using the Games as a way of jumpstarting even a quicker recovery in Fukushima and the other areas affected down near the fukushima daiichi nuclear meltdown and so you know this has to be one of the most massive greenwashes in the history of the olympics because as you say we went down there and we saw with our own two eyes that fukushima has not recovered uh, it is abandoned buildings galore and when you think about it it makes sense because they're drenched in in radioactive materials these houses taking them down would not necessarily be something that would be easy to do. And so, I mean I would just urge your listeners to look more into this because this recovery olympics is certainly a bit of a sham here and I think it needs to be exposed in the lead up to the games. But, you know, I'm painting a, a dire picture. When we went down there, it, it was intense and, you know, we had a we had a scientist with us who brought a dosimeter which is a device that charts the levels of radiation that's emitted through the air and we had the dosimeter on inside of a bus passing through fukushima and we saw with our own two eyes he was sitting in the seat right in front of us dave we saw with our own two eyes the the way that dosimeter jumped up as we got closer and closer to the fukushima daiichi unit one reactor which was one of the three that melted down you know when we picked the guy up at a rest area you know, some two hours still to go till we got to Fukushima, it read 0.04 and the professor told us that, um, his name was by the way Fujita Yasumoto, Professor Fujita Yasumoto told us that anything that went above 0.23 was unsafe, so when we started it was 0.04, but hey, by the time we got around the Fukushima Daiichi Unit 1 reactor, it had gone up to three point seven seven. So in other words, you know, like 18 times the safety level of uh, that, that. And people are living there. Right. So if we pop in just for a few hours, which we did, uh, we should theoretically just be fine. But if you're living in that kind of intense radiation, you're absolutely not going to be fine. And, and we saw that people realize that when we went around the prefecture, It looked totally abandoned. And those who are coming back are pretty much the people that are working to do the cleanup work. So it was eye opening in so many different ways.
2: Yeah, it it was a very intense experience. I mean, that that one building that had all of the items, including the children's toys that people had left behind. Yeah. It's just a searing thought. I couldn't even take too much of that. I had to go back on the bus because it was just, it just pounded it all home a little too hard.
1: Yeah. I mean, what we saw, I felt the same way. I mean, I couldn't stay in that building for too long. And, you know, what we saw when we walked into that, well, first of all, it said gift shop on the outside of the building. So I thought, this is a little strange. There's a gift shop. um, But okay, let's check it out. So we walk inside and there are all these items that people found after the tsunami um, that killed, you know, more than 10,000 people, by the way. And so all these items were found out there from watches to, um, you know, all stuffed animals. There was a whole shelf full of stuffed animals that people lost to uh, the gym gear that students were issued uh, to go to school and practice sports in. And all these were sitting on shelves with little Uh, meticulous signs next to each one of them saying where they were found and people could come into the gift shop if you will and they could say oh yeah that's that's my watch and they could reclaim it and i talked to one of the people running the place and they said that more than 700 people had come in and reclaimed more than two thousand items and so it was intense to see all these lost items probably many of which will actually never be reclaimed because They were probably the items of people who died from the tsunami and and nuclear meltdown. So that hit particularly hard as well. But, you know, that kind of poignancy was almost everywhere you looked when you were down in Fukushima. And again, to just sort of highlight the fact that Tokyo organizers are saying this is a recovery Olympics. And we talked to professors like Professor Satoko Itani, who was just gobsmacked by the whole thing. They're a Professor of Gender and Sports Studies at Kansai University and they were really highlighting how Basically all this this money being thrown at Tokyo Where you see all these cranes and all this furious construction getting ready for these Olympics that could all be sent to Fukushima where they still are in need of fix-up down there and, and we saw it with our own two eyes There's no question that professor Itani is correct there.
2: And the erasure was also deeply upsetting about the nuclear meltdown. I mean, when we were in that press conference with Shinzo Abe and Thomas Bach, the head of the International Olympic Committee, and all sorts of other political and cultural luminaries, uh, when they would speak of Fukushima, first of all, they, did, they wouldn't even say the word Fukushima. But mm-hmm. They would speak about it very obliquely in terms of the recovery Olympics after the earthquake, or uh-huh. after the tsunami, the nuclear part not mentioned once mm-hmm. in their yeah, discussion. They, uh, that, that to me was particularly galling because it's like, okay, if you're going to try to brand this as the recovery Olympics, recovery from what and why?
1: Hmm. Yeah, they would call it the, quote, affected areas. That's right. Which,
2: that was the yeah, phraseology.
1: Which seemed like such a euphemism. Orwellian, and if you're from...
2: Orwellian, yeah. it's just scope. <laughs>
1: yeah it's important to name people's names who are affected by the negative decisions that are the the repercussions the black swan event that we saw in in fukushima it's, i think it's important to acknowledge people's actual names and sort of you know slot everybody under the affected areas and then to promise that everything was just fine and that how you know thomas bach the president of the international olympic committee was talking about how the recovery Olympics was leading to this feeling of unity throughout Japan and how it was actually this big positive thing. It was a little bit too much to hear having just been down in Fukushima and seeing with our our own two eyes. You know, Dave, I want to ask you what you thought about those black pyramids that we saw, you know, strewn around the, the, that was intense too, I thought.
2: Yeah, let's be clear what that means. The black pyramids were that the topsoil, that I'm, w- that they get piled into these just hefty bags uh and then stacked on top of one another as part of the cleanup uh in fukushima and they're just there i mean it's countless numbers thousands of hefty bags filled with this topsoil and the thing about it that was disturbing was that you know topsoil contains seeds and contains you know living vegetation and we saw branches sticking out of the sides of these hefty bags as, you know, which also to me spoke to how long it's taking them to dispose of these hefty bags. I mean, you're keeping them around long enough to have vegetation actually sprout through the bag. Mm-hmm. It's like what's being done to dispose of them is an important right. question. Yeah, yeah. No I just, it was, it was a stunning display of 21st century dystopic architecture. Hmm, hmm. Ugh. All right, well, let's. Well, that's the horror. I want to get to the hope here because if they were afraid to call out Fukushima by its name, if they were afraid to talk about the nuclear meltdown, uh, activists were not. And you and I were also part of a demonstration that took place in, I believe, the Shinjuku section, I believe it's yeah. called, of Tokyo, like one of the most vibrant, active sections. I mean, imagine... Uh, Times Square. I kept thinking that it reminded me of Times Square back in the 90s before it was overrun by Disney and tourists they just packed with people but people who were of Tokyo not necessarily of other places just looking to gawk at, what, at, the, at the surroundings at the carnival of it all and mm-hmm. we marched through Shinjuku uh, for, for a long period of time and had speakers and a speak out what, what did you learn from that demonstration what did you get out of that
1: well, this was sort of the culminating public activity in a week of action that was organized by anti Olympics activists from around the world. So, people came from Los Angeles, from the No Olympics LA group. They sent probably the biggest contingent, around 17 people went from Los Angeles to participate. There were representatives from Paris on hand. They'll be hosting the 2024 Olympics and Summer Olympics. There were people from Pyeongchang in South Korea nearby and and from Seoul, South Korea as well. Pyeongchang hosted the 2018 Winter Games. Seoul hosted the 1988 Olympics. And so they came together of course people from Tokyo from the two main organizing groups against the Olympics in Tokyo were there as well we also had some representatives from Rio de Janeiro who participated with the Comitê Popular da Copa do Mundo e das Olimpíadas the Popular Committee of the World Cup and the Olympics so people from around the world came together and that really made the the week historic but the event that night that uh, rally and demonstration that you're talking about it was pretty powerful because, as you say, it was in Shinjuku, an area of Tokyo that's got all this glitzy consumerism, and so there were a lot of onlookers, sort of passers-by that were certainly intrigued by the rally. Uh, there were drums, there were chants, there were, you know, Then when the march started, that's when it really got interesting, because when you think about the tens of thousands of eyeballs that, that were looking at the people that were that were doing the march, mm-hmm. it's pretty powerful to think and you know um
2: had you ever been to a march like that that was full of that concentrated a throng of people i've been racking my own brain and the closest i can come to are some of the women's marches after trump was elected but even those i mean the the marchers actually outnumbered the onlookers this was a case where the onlookers by far outnumbered us and were were, seemed deeply affected by what we were doing
1: yeah, the fact that it was in such a a tight little area where they where the consumerism was still happening all around us. I mean, part of the the rally was through these tiny little alleyways. Part of the march was through some of these tiny little alleyways. So no, I I don't remember experiencing anything quite like this. I was in Portland for the Women's March, and that was so huge it just kind of took over the space. You couldn't even really move that well during that. Whereas this was a, a snake of activists kind of moving, wending through the through the town and through the people. And there was actually more interaction with the passersby than I expected. And, and many just jumped in and, and walked with us for a long period. Uh, all these little side conversations that were explaining why these individuals were doing the march and people would just hop in. So no, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, one thing I would point out is well, in talking to some of the activists in Tokyo, the last time they had a march, it was much smaller for starters. Uh, but the police weren't nearly as friendly. They put on their riot gear and they had their shields toward in, uh, pointed inward toward the protesters. The We had a, basically a police escort for this, a sort of phalanx of police there in Tokyo on either side of the protest, guiding it down these busy streets so we didn't get hit by cars and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and the people that I spoke with in Tokyo were saying, wow, having all those people from Los Angeles, from Paris, from elsewhere, Uh, seem to make the police a lot less keen to crack down on us. They've never been so friendly was what some of the protesters from Tokyo were saying, which I think really points to some of the wider strategic value of having a get together of activists like this, because they can share some of the ideas that are coming out of it. When is it useful to bring in international activists to do a protest event? I think those are the kind of conversations that were happening in the wake of the protest. But the protest itself and the march i mean it was really inspiring and and it was felt dreamlike at at certain moments one of the interview one of the people from los angeles who i interviewed johnny coleman one of the two co-chairs of no olympics los angeles said he felt like he was in a hyper capitalist video game with all the neon lights on on either side of us as we went through it so it was a pretty amazing night for those who've been to tokyo there's that godzilla way above on one of the buildings kind of looking down menacingly we passed by that we passed by these other iconic places and it was a night to remember that's for sure
2: well and another thing about it is that we were people i don't think people realize that it's not like you have freedom to assemble in tokyo that every demonstration comes with risk and we were given a sheet that explained the risk before we went out there saying hey you know, for assembling, we might be in a situation where uh, we might be arrested. And if arrested, you know, you could be held in jail up to, I think they said, 23 days. Yeah, that's right. And it was, I mean, that was something that as somebody who was flying out the next day, I'll be honest, I was like nervous about that. I was like, whoa, you know, 23 days in a Tokyo jail does not sound like how I want to spend my August but, but it's like I had this this feeling of calm came over me as soon as we approached the actual gathering, because when I saw how many people were there, it was just this safety in numbers feeling that oh no they're they're not arresting all of us that's not going to happen.
1: Absolutely, I mean I felt I felt the exact same way. The the activist that we spoke with ahead of the event that described all the riot police from the previous outing. They were predicting that there might be more riot police on hand than protesters. And so, yeah, we were reading the, the Tokyo code, the legal code, and to see what might happen. But I felt the same way when we walked up on that rally and there were hundreds and hundreds of people. There were lots of international media there. And so, yeah, I, I thought there's no way they're going to be able to crack down on all of us, especially when I saw the police that were there were not in riot gear. They were in their regular blues, and they just had their uh, little wands, this sort of neon wands to guide us. So, yeah, I mean, but that's, that's the risk that the activists were willing to take, and they stood together, and it was historic. And, you know, as someone who's followed anti-Olympics activism for more than a decade now, I have to say, you know, there's been a lot of waiting around for this moment and wondering because the Olympics are a global phenomenon that pop from city to city. The question was, when were activists going to put their minds together from all these different Olympic cities and start to strategize as a unit? And so that's what we saw the beginnings of here in Tokyo this past week. And I think that makes the activist events historic.
2: And that gets to my question. You mentioned the folks from L.A., Like, how do we understand this? I mean, 17 people coming from all the way from Los Angeles to Tokyo. I mean, how are they able to pull that off? And what's the significance of that?
1: Yeah, well, they pulled it off in part by holding a major fundraiser where they exceeded their goals. They made some $10,000 plus to send activists over. And so the people in and uh, Los Angeles are a really impressive collection of activists. No Olympics LA is a coalition of groups. They emerged from the Housing and Homelessness Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America, so they've got a strong umbrella group over the top of them. And so people who are involved in DSA LA are constantly feeding into No Olympics, so the people in in No Olympics who were there, many of them started as DSA members. And they did this big fundraiser. They brought a number of people over, including a film crew. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with their film crew, what they put together. I mean, these are talented filmmakers. I mean, Justin Garr had his own Netflix film. Uh, Eric Sheehan, he's been heavily involved in, in a number of fascinating productions, including a really interesting political video game. So I mean, that's the one thing that's really interesting to me about Los Angeles and the activists, they come in with serious skills, and they've used them to their advantage. while creating videos and doing these hilarious mayor auditions that they have on their website that your listeners can check out. And so, yeah, they put a lot of effort and made a big, big trip over and I think if you talk to any of them and I talked to almost every single one of them did post event interviews with them and they were feeling pretty pumped about it and excited to go back home and and keep fighting in Los Angeles against the Olympics there because, you know, Dave, you mentioned at the outset the debt displacement and militarization that tend to pop up in every Olympic host city. That's exactly what Los Angeles activists are fighting against, especially that displacement part um, and militarization part that's definitely going to come with LA 28 if LA 28 ends up coming. I mean, that's one of the main things that the activists from LA are trying to say is that we wanna stop those Olympics. And because the International Olympic Committee awarded those games to Los Angeles 11 years in advance, they inadvertently gave the activists in LA quite a bit more lead time to fight up against those Olympics. And so they're pushing against them now I think there's a a push for a referendum in the works. It'll be interesting to see what happens there, if they can get a referendum in Los Angeles or California to see if citizens want to weigh in and uh, vote on whether they want to host those Olympics in Los Angeles. That all still remains to be seen. But there's no question that having all those activists there has created momentum, not just for LA, but for that wider global movement. It's going to be exciting to see what happens next.
2: And I guess just one last question for you Jules and thanks so much for your time particularly on your vacation particularly because it's three hours earlier where you are Uh, if say someone asked you what your lasting memory was of Tokyo what would you say?
1: Wow, to pick just one lasting memory would be really tough because it, it was a whirlwind. And I have to say, big thanks to our Tokyo host who went to a lot of trouble mm-hmm. to make sure everything was really for us. And they just the people from Okatoari, what's one of the anti Olympics groups? Uh, they it means basically no thanks Olympics, which is kind of funny. Very polite. Uh, And then the other group, Hungarian Nokai, which means anti-Olympics group. I mean, they they went to great effort to make everything smooth from our our trip to Fukushima to the trip around to see the venues. So, I mean, they made it. So it makes it very difficult to pick one particular uh, moment. But if I if I had to pick, I would say the conversation that I had uh, with Masumi Koata. She is an elected official in Okuma Town. Okuma Town is right there outside of where the Fukushima Daiichi reactors went into meltdown. And she's on a council, a municipal council of 12 people. She's the only woman on the council and she's the only person who's speaking out against what's going on and the greenwashing, basically, that's happening around Fukushima. And she went on the tour with us and I got to talk to her extensively and it was just so powerful to see her standing up against the odds, and I felt like she was standing up to power, and she's a, a short, There's something she highlighted when I was speaking with her. She said, I might be small, but I'm strong, and she's going to keep pushing back against the Olympics, and you know, that, that I found incredibly powerful. Um, she said to us that she gets her strength from talking to the people that she represents. She told us that people are are still sick. There's people, she told us, that are dying from stress. And she finished that by saying the world needs to know. And, you know, that when she said that, it just cut right to my heart. And so, you know, I'm always going to keep uh, Masumi Kawata in my mind as I think about the Tokyo Olympics. But you know, that was just for me. I mean, it's, and it's hard. What about you, Dave? You were there for everything. What for you was your moment?
2: Oh, man, you're turning the tables on me just like that. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it, it would have to be uh, the culminating demonstration, particularly at one point where we went under the tunnel and the reverberation of the chants in Japanese, like, came back on us. I think mm-hmm. that's something I'll never forget because even though we were hundreds of, it felt for that moment like we were thousands, and so I had a real kind of we are many, they are few moment, which in th- mm. these days sometimes feels too, too far in between.
1: Mm. Yeah, and to have all those chants happening in multiple languages as well, I didn't mention that before, but you had your French, you had Korean, you, know, you had Japanese and US. and Signs you know, that- as well in all those languages. Yes, and that that felt really powerful, too, and, and on the right track in terms of fighting back against some of these global entities that are causing so much stress and strain today. Absolutely. Hey, Jules Boykoff, thank you so much for your time. And
2: I really do appreciate it. This is a great pod. And I really am excited to hear the feedback from folks about this experience. And I can't wait to have the folks from No Olympics LA back on the show. If people want to go to the archives, they could listen to past interviews we've done with those folks. But thanks so much for being on.
1: My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me.
2: That was Jules Boykoff, author of the book Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. People should check that out. That book is indispensable. We'll be back after a quick word from a new sponsor to the podcast, Mother Jones Magazine. And now a quick word from one of the sponsors of this week's podcast, a new sponsor, Mother Jones Magazine. Okay, look, if you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday hosted by one of my favorites, Jamila King, and it's called The Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison, and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones Podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine, think electoral skullduggery dark money and trump's russia connections alongside informative interviews with mother jones reporters and newsmakers the mother jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter told by their team of smart fearless reporters subscribe now on itunes soundcloud spotify stitcher or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts and now back to the edge of sports And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a familiar winner, one Megan Rapinoe. I just loved her response when she was asked in a recent New York Times interview about why she doesn't sit down with President Trump. I think she actually said this perfectly, and it actually speaks to a posture we should have about this president and his white nationalist death cult. This is what Rapino said. She said, A lot of people have said, Why don't you make a demand of the president that he'll sit down and talk with you if you go to the White House? But I'm not going to be naive and think that I'm going to sit down with Trump and he's going to change his mind. There are children locked up at the border who are dying, and that's not phasing him. So why would I phase him? See, I think that's so important. This idea that Trump could somehow be convinced on an individual basis is just the worst of stupid bleeding heart do goodery the fact of the matter is we need a movement in this country if we're going to prevent uh, future mass shootings future white nationalist eruptions and uh future carnage true american carnage which has taken place uh actually predates trump but you could see the way it's accelerated by having a foghorn of this kind of terror in the white house I'll also throw down for the Just Stand Up a player who I grew up watching, a terrific offensive lineman for the Giants named Jumbo Elliott. This is just what he tweeted. Uh, Trump is a racist, he's an elitist, he's a con man and a fraud. He is also a business failure and a minor celebrity huckster bullshitting way through life. Look, anytime a football player, specifically a white football player, calls out Trump, I want to highlight that. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. Goes to Jermaine Jones, a former member of the U.S. men's national team, in a very tired, sexist interview against pay equity. He called the women's soccer team girls, and he came up with this pathetic, misogynistic excuse, to use the words of my friend Jesse Hagopian, for why the men didn't even qualify, saying, Of course, as men, we know it's tougher to win a World Cup than the girls. Uh, Jermaine Jones your team is not performing and Jermaine Jones this is particularly disappointing because this past week saw the U.S. men's national team actually stick up for the women's team for the first time since this all of these uh, controversies and editorials started about the question of equal pay and so the idea Jermaine Jones that you would undercut the men when they're finally standing up and saying something just, it just is a low move on your part. So Jermaine Jones, please just sit your ass down. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. There's actually a lot to say this week for our uh, running segment that we do called Kaepernick Watch about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. Most notably, the ways in which Donald Trump recently, in a very racist way, has used Baltimore as his personal punching bag. And a lot of folks online, including Colin Kaepernick, have pointed out that they brought their Know Your Rights camp to the city of Baltimore, and they talked about what was beautiful amidst the struggle that a lot of people, particularly on the west side of Baltimore, uh, live their lives. And they just showed the difference between actual community engagement and being a racist pig when it comes to talking about the very serious problems that Baltimore faces. That's part of the Kaepernick Watch. Also, we learned this week that Eric Reed, uh, Colin Kaepernick's friend and compadre struggle will continue to take a knee during the anthem and it just goes to show you that Colin Kaepernick's legacy is still going to live in the National Football League even though they've tried to turn him into a ghost. And I want to give a quick shout out actually to Ed Reed, uh, former Baltimore Ravens safety, not just because he made the Hall of Fame, not just because he's always one of my favorite players, not just because he's always been a community activist in Baltimore, uh, but also he showed up for last weekend's Hall of Fame ceremony that he wore a remarkable and painful t-shirt that had pictures of young black men and women who died at the hands of police or in police custody. Um, from Tamir Rice, uh, to, to Sandra Bland, uh, to Philando Castile, and unfortunately too many to, to name right here. It took a lot of courage for Ed Reed to go to the hall of fame ceremony with that shirt. And given all that Ed Reed has meant to Baltimore and given the Baltimore theme of this Kaepernick watch, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Ed Reed. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Thank you to our new sponsor, Mother Jones Magazine. Thank you so much to our guest, Jules Boykoff. It's great to be back from Tokyo. And to everybody out there listening, please give a rating to this podcast. Please Uh, give a little uh, statement, a little write-up, you know, all that stuff makes a huge difference in the algorithms that I do not understand in terms of how Apple Podcast pushes these things. But as always, please listen to us on the podcast app of your choice. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Uh, We're going to have to take one more week off as I do the family vacation thing, but then we'll be back in two weeks. Please stay frosty even in these hot sweltering summer months. We are out of here. Peace.